Welcome to On Meaning. I'm Eugene Leventhal. In this week's episode, I got to speak with Pelin Kesebir. She is an honorary fellow and a former assistant scientist at the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We started the discussion by exploring some similarities and differences between existential psychology and positive psychology, before getting into virtues and well-being, and the role that spirituality can play in regards to well-being. Two things in particular really resonated with me from this conversation. The first was the role that the virtue of curiosity can play when it comes to finding interest in life as a whole and in terms of leading a fulfilling life. I've thought back on my own journey with depression and mental health as a whole after this conversation, and I do feel as though there definitely is a correlation between the times where I was feeling least curious, or potentially not curious at all, coinciding with my most serious bouts of depression. I feel like there's a lot to potentially unpack there, but in the interest of time, let's jump to the second thing that really piqued my interest, which was just the different types of virtues that we discussed, and curiosity and connection specifically being so key when it comes to well-being. Being curious seems strongly linked to wanting to and enjoying connecting with other people and to a general excitement towards existence. I've also been noticing that on days when I wake up and I'm not in a great place, finding ways to inject curiosity can really help me build up that zest for life and remind me of of that kind of zest that's within me that I can frequently forget due to other things going on. For example, on the day that I was writing this intro, I woke up not in the best state mentally or physically, but forcing myself to read and to play a bit of an instrument I'm trying to learn, and then forcing myself to do some things around the house, then actually spending time to sit down and write out the tasks that I wanted to accomplish that morning, that ended up setting the stage for a much more productive day and a day that I could look back on and be happy with. Whereas where I had just started that day, the only things crossing my mind were uh, negative thoughts and destructive habits and behaviors. You know, choosing to, and admittedly forcing myself a bit to get started working on this, uh, you know, writing out this intro, re-listening to the, the conversation that I had, it helped remind me that I want to learn more, that I love talking to people about these things, and that I want to experiment with my own habits and values more. This is obviously oversimplifying dealing with depression, and I I don't want to make it seem as though uh, what I just said is a proposal of, you know, how to get oneself out of severe long-term depression, but this is what my morning struggles can look like these days and the behaviors that I'm specifically trying to tweak and play with so that overall, day over day, I'm getting to a better place. Anyway, I'm rambling. Helen also does research on terror management theory, which we didn't have the time to dig into, unfortunately. In an overly distilled nutshell, uh, terror management theory is the idea that death anxiety or our fear of death is the core or at least a core foundational aspect of our consciousness and what pushes a lot of our drives that are happening both conscious and subconscious or unconscious would be better to say. There's a lot of interesting research exploring this area, and I do hope to have more folks on who focus on that area, but that'll have to be for another day. 
Without further ado, here is the interview. Ellen, thank you so much for joining today. Do you mind just mentioning your name and your professional title? Sure. Uh, my name is Pelin Kesebir, and I am an honorary fellow at the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Great, and thank you again for joining today. Thank you. <laughs> so to start the conversation very high level, I know in your background, you've looked at existential therapy and, uh, or excuse me, existential psychology, as well as uh, positive psychology. For the layman, do you mind kind of breaking down what you see as the difference between these two schools of thought? Absolutely. I can try. Um, it's hard to say that there are clearly demarcated boundaries for each of these fields. And that is especially the case, I would say, for existential psychology. Um, for sure, there have been philosophers and writers who wrote about existential issues and psychologists, especially therapists, have taken those ideas and they have applied those to, um, to the process of healing people psychologically. So there is that tradition of existential psychotherapy. Irving Yalom is uh, a big name, but there are other people. Um, Rollo May comes to mind. Um, so that's the more the psychotherapy part of existential psychology. More recently, there have also been social psychologists or um, psychologists who are more focused on doing research on um, just quote-unquote regular people, normal people, and trying to understand the role of existential issues on our motivations, on our psychological states. Um, and that has also used the experimental methodology. Those um, researchers, they have relied on experimental methodology because of that, this area has also come to known as existential experimental psychology or experimental existential psychology. So at the center of existential psychology, I, I would say, is the question of how do existential issues, which include our mortality, our search for meaning, the fact that we are born alone and we are going to die alone, all our limitations inherent in, in life, how do all of those shape our functioning in life? So. And how can we use this to, how can we use this knowledge to get people to a psychologically better place? So that's more the psychotherapy aspect. But that would be, in a nutshell, how I see existential psychology. Positive psychology, on the other hand, is focused more on the question of the good life. The good life, um, subjective positive experiences, positive personality traits, positive institutions. It's all about optimal, optimal functioning. And it's a more recent area of study. Um, it became very popular in the last couple of decades. And what I will say is that Positive psychology and existential psychology, I think they are, I mean, they are cousins or they are even siblings. So they look at very similar questions. They are all about, like, it's all about existence. How should people live? 
positive psychology is a little bit probably more uh, prescriptive in the sense of that it, it tries to provide answers um, to the question of how we should live, whereas existential um, psychology is a bit more descriptive. It describes what we or who we are as existential beings and um, how we are impacted by existential issues. That's probably one of the differences. What I believe is that existential psychology and positive psychology, they should even interact more than um, they are currently doing. We really have to combine them and have this uh, maybe field called existential positive psychology because no conception of a good life can exclude existential issues. It is impossible to be happy. It is impossible to thrive as a person if we do not have a healthy relationship with our own existence, if we deny, for example, our mortality, if we do not address these questions. They um, they, they are just a big part of being happy. Nobody can be happy um, unless they look at existence in the face and accept it as it is and still embrace it. Absolutely. And so, I mean, there's a whole world of potential threads to follow there, but I specifically wanted to dig into some of your work around the topic of virtue, uh, virtues. And so, I guess before jumping into a specific question there, how do you view what is virtue or what are virtues and how, how do they come about in the first place? Yeah, right. Virtues, I would define as psychological resources. They are personal strengths that help us with practically with everything in life. They are important for interpersonal functioning, the relationships between people, but also intrapersonal, meaning our own relationship with ourselves. And they're just, I mean, character strengths um, is pretty close to what a virtue is. And to be able to function effectively in the world, we do need virtues. No person um, and also no society can fare well without virtues. What are some examples of virtues, of course? I mean, courage, for example, comes to mind, right? Especially because we are talking about existential issues and courage is essential to be able to live um, to live well, right? Other examples would be, for example, kindness or honesty or wisdom or um, persistence or hope, zest. Sincerity, all of those are examples of virtues. And as I said, they are psychological resources that help us to deal with, in a way, to deal with life. And what's your view on how much of that might be innate within people versus, you know, culturally or socially formed? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, This question is actually about how much our personality is a function of nature versus nurture, um, because virtues at the end of the day, as I said, they are personality qualities. And the answer seems to be, it's, it's um, first of all, definitely it's both. 
we cannot deny that nature plays a role. Genetic factors, heritability, they definitely play a role as with any other personality characteristic. Um, some say it's about 50%, some say it's less, maybe 40% or 35%. Um, but overall, we know that our genes, what we are born with, they give us a range, right? So we can be moved within that range in terms of, for example, courage or kindness, but there is a range. We cannot deny that. At the same time, though, Nurture definitely plays a role. It plays a role um, when we were growing up, what was our immediate environment like? Especially a sense of insecurity, be it in a material way um, or in a physical way or in a psychological way. Nurture definitely plays a role, our immediate um, environment and also culture, the culture at large, what kind of role models are we exposed to, for example? Do we see virtuous people pictured as role models? Is that what we see in in the media, in our textbooks, or do our um, songs or um, folk tales or movies, do they mention virtues? Do they depict characters that have great qualities? All of those also play a role. So it's both it's both nature and nurture. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the way you put it as if they're, you know, the genetics can kind of potentially give us a, a range or a band or a spectrum, however you want to put it. And then, you know, the our lived environment, everything around us from our family to all the way to very high level, you know, more abstract narrative concepts are, you know, if we're a, a, a putty, uh, you know, a, a clay that's born with certain natural ability to be so malleable, the culture is what actually ends up forming it. But the genetics do still play a role in how, how easy is it for that clay to be a adjustable in the first place. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, the last thing is nature shapes us, nurture shapes us. But then at the end of the day, we ourselves can shape ourselves too. And that's maybe the most important part, right? Because yes, we are born with that um, range, but we can all improve ourselves. We can all become more virtuous than we currently are if only we set our minds to it and work hard at it. Because it's not easy, right? Um, but it is possible. We can become more virtuous and it's it's really worth it as virtues are clearly related to well-being. That also just made me think of how, you know, in terms of our virtues and, and that interplay with, with, say, societal or cultural virtues, it's also very interesting to think, you know, as we get a little older, presumably from, you know, I, I can't imagine too many two-year-olds actively working on their on their virtue schematics. But, you know, as we get older and our conscious mind is able to kind of be more of an active player in our lives, 
you know, what it, what happens when there's a tension when you realize, oh, hey, my personal landscape of virtues might actually contrast with what's being accepted as the norm around me. And does that encourage people to then pursue, you know, I, I might think that people are being a little too mean to each other around and I would actually like to be nicer, but then I'm the weird one out. And that feels like that also creates an interesting tension in terms of us moving to a more virtuous society in general. Uh, but again, it's like who defines what is that virtuous society in the first place? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think um, what you are seeing is really important in the sense that it emphasizes the role of the larger culture and the people with which we are surrounded with. Because I say, and we know that virtues are associated with well-being, but that is more the case in societies where virtue is rewarded. In completely dysfunctional environments, it's hard to be virtuous. And then the well-being benefits of virtues uh, might also be not as high as in societies or institutions or environments where people are in general virtuous and the systems are virtuous too. Yeah, I can, I can definitely, having worked in the, you know, in and around finance for seven years, I can definitely attest to just how different the virtue landscape can look in one industry versus another. Uh, you know, now I'm in academia or working at a university. It's such an interesting contrast of values. And yeah, it's funny to see how that works out. Yeah, fascinating. And so to to follow a specific thread you were mentioning, so what what do you see as that interplay between virtues and well-being or happiness? Yeah, no, that is um, a great question. And there have been, like, there's a large body of research that, ha that has been conducted on the relationship between well-being and virtues, and in general, between feeling good and doing good. Right, because we all want to feel good, um, but is happiness or positive subjective feelings are they more in acting, for example, like selfishly or just pursuing hedonic pleasures, or is there more happiness associated with doing well, being a good person, acting virtuously, acting altruistically, and? What we know, um, as I said, from a large body of research is virtues help us if we want to be happy. And this is something that actually brings me joy to, to see and to share um, because it reinforces my belief in a, in a fair world where virtue is rewarded. It is rewarded with happiness. When we look at happy people, and I can ask you, you can think about the happiest people that you know, like, who are they? What kind of people who, I mean, yeah, what kind of people are they? Are they selfish people? Are they cold people? Are they impolite people? Right? I mean, oftentimes the happiest people we know, they are really kind, they are benevolent, they are warm-hearted, they are genuine, they are generous, and they are also maybe, they are hardworking, they are persistent, they are hopeful. All of these are virtues, and research 
bears out the observation that happiness, life satisfaction, and positive emotions, they all correlate with with virtues. And there are some virtues which are more closely associated with happiness than others. And I might might go into that if you'd like me to. But in general, in general, um, any virtue or any character strength that researchers looked at, they found a positive correlation with um, happiness, well-being, and life satisfaction, these, these related constructs. Yeah, and before actually specifically asking you to to uh, provide some more color there, I did want to pull uh, one quote from, a, I know, a paper that you co-authored in pursuit of happiness, empirical answers to philosophical questions. Uh, because I, I think this sort of evolution that you alluded to, um, both as part of Jim Holt's work and, and some of the exploration that you were doing in that paper, uh, I just really love the, the kind of summary of how this has changed, uh, with the quote being that the history of the idea of happiness happiness could be summarized in a series of bumper sticker equations. Happiness equals luck in the Homeric era. Happiness equals virtue in the classical era. Happiness equals heaven in the medieval era. Uh, medieval era. Happiness equals pleasure in the Enlightenment era. And now we've kind of moved on to happiness equals a warm puppy, uh, which I, I just loved of, of viewing that. But I wonder with that kind of view of the, the changing nature of happiness and the link with virtue, do you see us now, or are, are we at a point where that either is or needs to change in some capacity, or are, are we kind of just uh, permanently in this uh, happiness equals a warm puppy phase, and that's where humanity is going to be? Right, right, right. Yeah, that's that's of course um, tongue in cheek, <laughs> um, but um, I think it's fair to say that across the centuries, as people had more material luxuries as life became easier, right? It became more common to expect more from life, right? If you were born, say, 300 years ago, like you, for example, a woman would hardly even expect that all the the kids that um, she gives birth to would survive, right? I mean, you could be like a king and you could just get an infection and die. You cut your finger and not enough help and you're not around soon. Exactly. So life was much harder. My understanding is that as life became materially easier, we became a little bit more entitled. And I mean, that's understandable and I don't blame anybody, but at the same time, it has put us in a place where we expect life to go well all the time and we feel entitled to feel good most of the time, right? And that is a problem because that's just not how life is constructed. That's not how life works. And um, the great thing about existential psychology is that it reminds us of that, right? Existential psychotherapy, it underlines the fact that we have to acknowledge, accept that anything can happen at any time, right? We cannot control everything. Things can go in directions that we don't want them to. We are mortal, even if we don't want it. All of these reminders about the inherent difficulty of existing, in a way, comforts us, 
right? Whereas in our current state, if we want to feel good all the time, or at least most of the time, and we deny the realities of life because we do not have to face, I mean, the hard realities often, as as often as our ancestors had, then it's easy to um, deny them, but that doesn't help us. So that's that's what I would say. Yeah. yeah and to, to jump back to something you were alluding to earlier, what are some of the, the other findings of, you know, what are the things that really help people lead both virtuous and happy lives? Well, as I said, any virtue almost by definition serves their possessor well. But it turns out that there are some virtues, they are even more closely linked to happiness than others. What are those? Do you have any guesses? May I ask you? What else links between virtues and happiness? I mean, I, a part of what I was taking from what you were saying is the importance of, to use, say, Martin Buber's language of seeing someone else as a thou and, you know, truly being present with others and not expecting that you always need to get things out of it. And yes. that balance of just not being purely selfish and thinking of how you fit in a larger collective. Oh, absolutely. That is that is absolutely, um, I mean, it's one of the, I would say that is one of the largest contributors to happiness. Yeah. But, you know, my question, and again, we can cut this part. I was asking like, what virtues do you think are most closely linked to happiness? So, mm. you know, like think about single words, like, for example, like hope or yeah. like sincerity or, yeah. And again, I don't want to put you yeah. in a... No, 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 uh, this is good. No, I, I think, you know, uh, honesty, authenticity, I guess authenticity, genuineness, something along, I'm just thinking of a lot of synonyms now on that front, connection, yes. and I imagine health too, but I, I also wonder how that idea of personal and collective health plays into that. But those are a few that immediately come to mind. Yeah, yeah, no, those are those are very much um, on the right track. And connection, we can start with connection, love, the ability to love and being loved, that actually comes across as one of the strongest um, correlations between um, happiness and, and um, any virtue. So if you have that ability, if you can connect to others, um, if you have... Uh, healthy, strong, warm relationships, that's major for well-being. Um, and then other types of connection um, or other qualities related to connection, for example, gratitude turns out to be a huge, huge um, contributor to well-being. Too. And gratitude, we can feel it, of course, to other people, but we can also feel it in general towards life right? Um, we can feel it as a, as a, it's, it's almost experiencing life as a gift and it is the opposite of feeling entitled, right? So if you can feel gratitude for existing, despite, despite all its pains, then you, again, that contributes um, to well-being. Others are, for example, hope, and hope is, in a way, actually, it's also connection. You are connecting to a positive image of the future. It's about connecting to the faith inside you that says things are going to be okay. 
And so I've said love, I've said gratitude, I've said hope. Um, another one, which is really interesting, people are typically surprised um, when they hear this, but curiosity. It turns out that curiosity is a virtue that is very strongly related to happiness. And I, I mean, to me, that makes so much sense because if you are a curious person, life is so interesting and you can experience fascination. You can experience the feeling of awe and you can, curiosity is really about getting out outside of yourself. And um, that is really crucial to well-being because being self-absorbed is a recipe for misery. And um, curiosity is about being absorbed in things that are not you, other things, right? So curiosity is closely li linked to, um, to well-being. And then zest, um, the virtue of zest, but it's almost synonymous, right? Zest and happiness. So, uh, but zest also is about feeling a joy from existing, like existential joy. You feel joy. Again, um, things might not be great, not everything is perfect, but still there is that love of life in you that says yes, that keeps saying yes to whatever whatever life's life um, is has in store for us. So those are the main um, virtues. But as I said before, any virtue you can think of, you will find that it is positively related to well-being. And that distinction of zest and happiness definitely makes sense to me, especially just in my own mental health journeys. You know, when you're in the depth of depression, getting to a point of zest for life seems, you know, seems light years away. But the idea of how can you latch on to hope and find ways to get inspired by the creativity again and for that to trigger more thinking of empathy and place yourself outside yourself for me, at least, any time I've kind of had lows, those three always seem like the cornerstone or, or maybe the trampoline off which change can start happening. And the goal is like, how can I get back to just being able to look at a sunny day outside and be like, oh, man, it's good to be alive right now. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that makes so much sense to me. And I also wonder, you know, going back to, to zoom out for a moment and thinking of that interplay of culture and society and virtue formation, you know, in reading some of uh, your research and, and other related research in this space, it really made me think of, you know, in the in term of large scale, say narratives and these large structures that uh, uh, have a lot of influence in terms of incentive formation. It seems as though one of the biggest things that culture can play is placing incentives around specific virtues and values, which then is sort of that, that feedback loop that, you know, there's no one in an office deciding of how courageous do we want our people to be like, you know, and none of that is that intentional, but it's so interesting to see how those things form over time, which also makes me wonder of how can people individually be part of kind of defining and redefining those kind of virtues for themselves or groups around them? I don't know. Do you have any, any specific thoughts there? I realize that might be a little too abstract. <laughs> Let me try um, to think. I think in general, what we want is systems or organizations that reward virtue. And 
especially virtues of care and concern for others. Because, for example, hard work, that is also a virtue and that is very much important, right? But what if you have a hard worker in your organization who at the same time is is a complete jerk and is just a toxic person, right? So here, I believe virtues that are related to living together well, to caring and yeah, having care and concern for others, those really play a very important role in collective well-being. So organizations um, or systems, as I said, they should just reward virtues of kindness and just not put up with, for example, I've used the word toxic people, regardless of how well they perform. I believe there will come a time when organizations will realize that these people, they have a very high cost to the organizational well-being and to other people. And, and they might be great performance, um, but the costs of their toxic behavior ultimately will undo any benefit they bring. So I really do believe that it's important for organizations to hire virtuous people and promote virtuous people while recognizing people who are just, yeah, as I said, just toxic. And there is a lot of research on this actually in organizational behavior, in social psychology, personality psychology too. We are researching dark personality, for example, people who are, say, narcissistic or manipulative or just psychopathic and they just do not feel remorse. And I mean, coming from the financial industry, you might actually see maybe more examples of that there than in the academia. I I don't want to stereotype, but- Uh, I'd um, be happy to give examples offline. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So that's one thing that comes to mind. As long as organizations are willing to promote people and promote practices that are virtuous and serve the greater good and the collective well-being rather than focusing on just performance as a metric by itself, that might be one way to, to start. And I also want to make sure we touch on the question of the role of religion and spirituality as part of virtue formation. What do you see as the link there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a big and important question. Now, there is no denying that religi- religions really put a great value on inculcating virtues. Any religion you look at, you will see that they have a vocabulary of virtues. They have practices around instilling virtues in people. Um, and again, like any religion um, has that. And of course, the waning of organized religion in the US and also in many other parts of the world, there is a little bit of a concern in that regard um, because spirituality is, I mean, that's of course also that can be very beneficial and valuable. But typically, spirituality is a bit more individualistic than organized religion. And 
because virtues, at least the kinds of virtues that I have characterized as values of care and concern are more about collective living, they might not be emphasized as much in different types of spirituality that we see today. But what is common to both religion and spirituality is a sense of the sacred, right? A sense of attributing value to things that are invisible and some larger beyond, right? And we have that both in religion and in spirituality. And this ability to attribute life outside of ourselves with sacred value. And I use the word sacred here in a secular way. I mean by it attributing ultimate value to things outside of ourselves, things that are not linked to our own ego. That can be a way to develop virtues because virtues are really about valuing things outside of ourselves. Altruism is about that. Yeah, I I, I couldn't connect it, but if you want to maybe ask a question. Yeah, no, it's part of what you were saying. And that's also where I was thinking of, you know, as the the role of large scale organized religion has been waning, you know, I I personally do not identify myself as a religious person. I had times when uh, I was the most religious person in my family and leading that charge and I've kind of scaled back. Uh, I see myself as very spiritually curious uh, and I have Mm -hmm. my own, you know, practices and and things I'm forming there where I'm realizing the relationship with spirituality shouldn't be of, oh, I introspect or I meditate. It needs to have more structure around it. And that's kind of one of the things that irks me sometimes from certain camps of uh, like the new atheists or not to call anyone out in specific, but where it's just this argument of, oh, well, religion is old and we don't need that anymore. Be self-responsible, virtuous people. And I'm just that that so disregards human nature. So what is the alternative virtue and value incentive formation structure if it's not religion for most people? And I have yet to hear a good answer on that front. What are your thoughts on that side? Oh, I I completely actually agree with what you say. And the thing is, we also know that religious people are happier. And it's a really interesting paradox because when you look at the individual level, more religious people, and especially if it's an intrinsic kind of religion, genuinely experienced uh, faith, that is associated with higher well-being. But what we find is when you look at the like, geography level or location level, for example, when you look at the states in the U.S. that are most religious, or when you look at the countries in the world that are most religious, this time you see a reverse, a negative correlation with well-being. The places that are actually the least happy are the more religious. So it's there's this really, this paradox, individual versus um, collective level. And it seems to be the case that as people get richer, as they get more educated, as the individual starts to feel more control over their outcomes and they feel secure, it seems that they become less religious, right? Um, But religion has some benefits that cannot be denied. 
all these virtues that we talk about, we can cultivate them much more easily, for example, if there is a being that we feel is helping us to develop them and wants us to develop them. Or when you think about virtues such as courage or hope, somebody who has a strong faith in God or whatever they may call it, starts actually at a more advantaged place, right? Than somebody who who just doesn't have that belief. And it's it's a really hard question because um I mean religion it's it can also lead to lots of very negative, undesirable things. Um, but at the same time, given human psychology, there are things that only and only organized religion can do. So I don't think it's an easy answer, <laughs> easy question to answer. Yeah. And I realize we're we're already getting close to our time together. Would you be would you have a few minutes to go over? Okay, I just want to ask one more question before my last one. And and recognizing time, I'm not going to ask you to define terror management theory and all the relevant steps. I'll provide the definition at the beginning of the episode in my intro. But I I think part of the paradox that you were mentioning, and I just noticed it in my own life where, you know, I have certain uh, folks in my life who are a bit older, you know, they're in their seventies dealing with some health issues. And whenever we have conversations of mortality or, or anything related to death anxiety, those kind of conversations, you know, for them, uh, this one person I'm thinking of, they say, oh, well, I, you know, I deeply at my core believe in karma. So death is not scary to me. And mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm never going to try to burst that bubble. If that helps them be comfortable, like, please just be happy and, and be comfortable. But I also wonder, you know, is the acceptance of mortality at a deep level, does it help that kind of, you know, lead that virtuous life? Or does it for a lot of people, if you don't have the right structure around you, that it actually kind of, you know, it, it shoots in the wrong direction where all of a sudden you're left even more, more worried and not understanding of where you should go in this complicated landscape? Well, I would say that acceptance of our mortality is, is good for us. It's an unmitigated good because we cannot live well without accepting that we are mortal, it's where wisdom starts, right? Realizing that we are finite beings, we are here for a short amount of time, and also it can really induce terror, but this death can come at any time. I mean, we hope that it doesn't, but there is no guarantee that any of us will be here tomorrow, right? Unfortunately, it's not easy to accept. Um, the thing is, everything in our cells it has evolved to make us resist the reality of death, right? We don't want it, at least under, under normal circumstances. We really um, re- resist it with all our being. But to live well, we need to understand the reality of mortality. And as lots of philosophers said, to live well, we need to learn how to die well. And to die well, we need to learn how to live well. So life and death are just intertwined. And I feel that when you are young, it's more understandable if you are um, afraid of death, right? Because it's 
because there's still so much you want to do. You want to live a good life. And it's more understandable to be terrorized by the idea of death. But a part of healthy human development is as we get older to start to understand that this is a normal part of life and this is where we are headed. And um, I always say that if you are maybe middle-aged or beyond and you still have a um, very high level of death fear, that might actually be a sign that you are not living a good life, right? Because people who are living fulfilled lives, they do not fear death um, beyond 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 normal, right? So in general, I would say that a big part of wisdom and a life lived well is to accept the things that are just givens of existence, right? This is what existential psychology says too. And some of us just have a really, really hard time dealing with our mortality. And it's, again, personality, right? Some people are much more agreeable and they can be like, yeah, death, it's part of life. And some people, we are more disagreeable and um, death to get its share of our um, oppositional um, nature. But yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've meandered a no, little no, bit. That's but great. I don't yeah. In general, you've mentioned a few terms that make me wonder of how many studies are being done across, you know, big five personality breakdowns and correlations between certain aspects. But unfortunately, that'll have to be a, a conversation for another day. I mean, those are such amazing questions. And like personality is, of course, another big like passion of mine. And uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. That, 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 likewise, my mom has actually written books in Russian on personality psychology, following building on certain Jungian and other schools. And yeah, we, we can follow up on that another time. But uh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah to, to respect your time for today, I do want to end with one more question of, you know, where do you find meaning in life, and how has the work that you've done altered that potentially? That's such a great question. Thank you for asking that. I believe, like many people, definitely my relationships, um, they play the biggest, they are the biggest source of meaning in my life. I feel very, very fortunate that I've had, you know, a very loving family. I've, I've always, I mean, I felt, I still feel that I'm surrounded with lots of love and I feel, as I said, incredibly lucky. I mean, I wish that upon everybody. Unfortunately, not everybody is that lucky to have that. But when you have that, that sense of safety, that sense of being surrounded with just the people who want the best for you. And of course, having doing that in return for them having people that i care for that is a big source of meaning and then um definitely for me learning and sharing what i learn that provides a i mean a great sense of meaning for me just especially about the topic of well-being just just telling people what are ways in which we can cultivate well-being that gives me so much fulfillment in my life. Other than that, just I think love of learning to plays a big role. I feel 
so good when I just learn new things, just making new connections, thinking about things that I have not thought before, learning things that I didn't know. That is an instant boost in meaning and joy for me. And yeah, I guess that's all. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything else. No, I appreciate you sharing. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut off. No, I I really really do believe that um, meaning comes from seeing value. If you can see value in different aspects of life, and it might be small things, but also big things, that's where, that's where, again, both where meaning and joy is. Even if you look at the smallest things, you can look at a, I don't know, like a, like a pencil. And if you look at it and then think, oh, like, I wonder where this came from. Like the materials, where did they come from? Who designed this? Like, think about the people who are associated with it. Like, what is its history? And think about all the people who use a similar pen and what have they done with it? I wonder what kind of things they wrote. So when you make those connections to things that go beyond the immediate and you appreciate them, you associate them with um, with just positive values, that's, I think, where meaning lies, making connections to things that go beyond the immediate. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing. And that always makes me think of, for some people, especially who are at the beginning of the journey, it can seem of, oh, I don't know where I find meaning, but nothing's wrong with that. These journeys involve time, commitment, exploration, and putting energy into it. It's not as though it's just plopped down in your lap at some point. So thank you. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm so glad you say that because to some people, this comes very easy. And to some people, this does not come easy at all. But the people who struggle with that, they just should not feel bad. It's just like, having, you know, like one part of one shape of arm or one color of eyes. It's just, it's what we are born with, but we can just think about these issues and cultivate the highest qualities in ourselves that we can. And then um, it's a journey, as you said, it's never ending. Absolutely. And I'm going to make sure to post uh, your website and bio in the show notes for this episode. Is there anywhere else you want to direct people who might want to learn more about you or your work? Probably not. Thank you, though. You know, I have a Twitter account, but that account, too, I started in Turkish and then it grew and it grew. So I wouldn't, I would probably, so I, I'm writing it in Turkish now. So, so for I any Turkish listener, listeners, I'll include the Twitter, but uh, otherwise focus on the, on the professional side. <laughs> No, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank I, you so much for joining today. This is a really fun conversation. Thanks for taking the time to tune in today. On Meaning is created by me, Eugene Leventhal. You can reach out at onmeaningpodpod at gmail.com or you can find me with the handle of onmeaningpod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for now. Special thanks goes out to Michael Butler who has been lending a helping hand with some things as I've been getting the podcast started. You can also check out our website, onmeaningpod.com to learn more information about the podcast or any events that we'll be putting out. Until next time, be well and speak soon.